Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we look forward now to that gift that Jesus would have each one of us experience, a gift he came to give us, and that is his rest, his peace, his wholeness. He came to give us life, and many of us in the rush have achieved many other things and in the process sort of lost our lives, or at least control of them. So would your spirit work, and would you open our hearts and minds to this truth, for we pray in Christ's name, amen. This morning, I want us to think about a new name for a very common disease, a disease that causes many of us pain and exhaustion, a disease from, from which we seek healing, usually only when the pain is so intense we can't stand it any longer, or we crash and burn. This disease is called living without margin. Our elders and staff have been studying a challenging book entitled Margin by Dr. Richard Swenson. You're going to hear lots about it this summer and next year. The author defines margin as follows, and you're going to, this is kind of a new word in our vocabulary that uh, I think we'll be using, so listen. Margin is that space that exists between ourselves and the limits of our resources or abilities. Margin is that space that exists between ourselves and the limits of our resources and our abilities. Living without margin, without that space, is best described as living on the edge of chronic fatigue, depression, frustration, not having time to do the things we really want to do, feeling our life is out of control, living with the daydream of escape. Uh, living with a psychic instability that prevents peace from implanting itself very firmly in our human spirits. And the good news is Jesus offers a cure for this disease of the soul. Leading us to the first truth in this text, it's good to know that it's not the will of Jesus for his followers to live exhausted, hassled, overloaded lives. He didn't come here to add to our burdens. Our text says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest, implying he came to relieve the stress of life. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Too many of us, if we could talk one-to-one, -one, would say our lives are like flight controllers out of control. Our strength is being sapped by the sheer velocity of our lives. And our pain is related to the priorities we've chosen. This is not God's fault. It's not Christ's will. It's the result of choices we've made in response to our culture. Let me illustrate how this creeping disease of marginless living has come upon us and impacts us. Mercury News front page reported on the new trend of shorter vacations in Silicon Valley. I quote, what counts for a vacation these days is changing, especially in Silicon Valley, where workaholism is a celebrated dysfunction. Where workaholism is a celebrated dysfunction. Our culture rewards it. Trips that normally take a week are being crunched into a weekend. Can't we do it faster, clients ask their travel agents. Others fear disaster will strike in their absence. Others combine work and play so much that when they return from a, quote, rest, with their computers in their laps, more exhausted than if they had stayed home. The New York Times, we go to the other end of the continent, reported that the new trend is for bosses to ask those people 
who want to get ahead in their company to work Saturdays, six-day weeks. And what was interesting, the paper said, is that workers responded happily to the extra day because it got them away from the tensions of relationships at home caused by their workaholism. Interesting cycle. I repeat, it's not the will of Jesus for us to live weary, overburdened, hyper-stressed lives. Jesus does not validate or reward workaholism. It's a disease of our culture and it's demonic. So what's the cure? And that leads to the second great truth in the text and it has to do with the cost of healing this disease. Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Interesting verb. Sometimes I schedule what I call a come to Jesus meeting with uh, people on staff and that refers to a kind of confrontational encounter with a person in which we discuss non-negotiable changes in their behavior. Very similar in this text, to come to Jesus in our text implies a similar crossroads of decision involving trading one lifestyle that's causing us too much pain for another and we'll pay anything to make the change. Now, talking with numerous people about this subject, there's a common response, and maybe you're already beginning to make it because we preached on the pace of life before and I can read some of your minds. And I've checked this out with some groups I've already dealt with this subject regarding. Uh, first, one of you might say, well, we have a mortgage. Or we just simply want certain things. I, I, I want a new Suburban. I want this. I want that. That costs money. That demands time. Or I'm retired and I'm busier than ever. Or downsizing in my company demands that I do the job of two. And if I don't put in the time, people are standing in line to take my job. So while it's a great idea, but when you think of Silicon Valley and our lifestyle, totally unrealistic. I need to say I agree with you. On the human level, what we're talking about here, breaking free from marginless living is impossible. But I want to add to us as Christians, is there anything that Jesus teaches that's not impossible in our own human strength? We can't do anything that he commands in our own strength. But let's just suppose that Jesus is serious, that he wants his followers to have rest in the mad, hassled environment in which we live, how is that possible? What would motivate us to consider changing our priorities? What would make us begin to think things are possible? Unfortunately, that isn't a happy answer, as I've observed. I think Freud was right. I, I, I think for most of us, change will only come from pain. A medical crisis like a heart attack will get our attention. I've seen people lose weight and start an exercise program after an angioplasty or a heart attack and before they said, I can't possibly make time for exercise. I've been trying for 10 years to lose weight. But the pain comes and overnight they can re-regiment their lives dramatically. Or a breakdown of a marriage happens and one day we wake up to the fact we've chased everything to support our family and meanwhile we lost our family. Or something snaps emotionally inside of our heads. And we find every day we drag ourselves to work exhausted or we're suddenly angry all the time, depressed. We hate work, we hate people, and we spend most of our time dreaming only of some form of escape. Then we realize we're in trouble, that's psychic pain. It's important to note, and this was another response to this offer from Jesus, that the cure for marginless living that Jesus offers is not abandonment of responsibility. 
He's not saying, well, gee, why don't you just bail out and go pursue a life of self-indulgence and narcissism? If you have enough money, start spending it, go to an island, take life easy. That's not what he's suggesting. He's not, in fact, saying we should run away from this hassled, high-cost, gridlock lifestyle of the Bay Area. I kept track of some of those who do, and they've gone to the so-called country areas and run from the responsibilities and heaviness of this area. And you know what? They made a discovery. Wherever you go, there you are. Because the problem isn't the culture or the environment. The problem's us and the things we want and the choices we've made. This is what Jesus is saying. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A yoke is a task. It involves work that every Christian who knows Jesus is called to do. But through the, his metaphor of the double oxen yoke, Jesus is simply saying, if you'll get involved with my priorities, I'll pull with you. So even though you have a work to do as my disciple, it won't exhaust you because we'll do it together. The part I can't participate in is if you go chasing off on the cultural stuff, I'm not going to join you there. And then you're going to fall on your face. We've said over and over again, a primary goal of coming to this church, of being a Christian, is to become like Jesus. Our job as a Christian is to manifest his life in the world. And it, that looks different probably every week as we talk about it because there's so many dimensions. But you know, one of the things that Jesus modeled that we need to model is that he was never stressed, never in a hurry, never talked of burnout, and yet he had three years to do the most important job any human being has ever done in the history, and that saved the world. I think it's fascinating to study the habits of Jesus. In the midst of the busiest time, when he finally had the crowds all around him and the, the disciples were just surging with excitement, thinking, oh, we've got a guy of power here. Look at the crowds. At that very moment, Jesus would walk away and say, come on, guys, we're going up to the mountain. I need to be with my heavenly Father in prayer, and then we need some rest, and we need to relate. And they couldn't understand it. They thought he was crazy. Isn't this what you're working for, Jesus? No. He modeled something else. Jesus needed relationships with his friends and needed private relationship with his heavenly father. And if the son of God needs that, don't we? Jesus had margin in his life and left us a model that we've sadly neglected in our time. So the cure our Lord offers for marginless living is simply a call to seek balance in our priorities to value what God values and give it priority. And what does God value? He values people, relationships, family, friends, community. I, I need to tell you, because Jesus would tell us if he was here, without relationships we can have the whole world and be miserable. As the writer of Margin says, we have more things and time-saving devices than any culture in history. Our wallets are fat, our houses are bigger, our cars are faster, and our brains are smarter. And yet when we neglect relationships in the pursuit of these things, our final reward will fittingly be all the unhappiness money can buy. All the unhappiness money can buy. I've noticed in this prosperous time of Silicon Valley, as I take the pulse of people, as the stock market has gone up, as house values go up, people are almost frantic in the sense that it hasn't produced happiness. 
There's a correlation of more misery in relationships as the money increases. Jesus knew that all the time. We saw a fabulous movie the other night over at the Stanford Theater. I love old movies. This was a Frank Capra movie entitled You Can't Take It With You. I think we're going to show it here this summer. Rick thought we could have a hot August night here and have everybody see it because it's worth seeing. James Stewart. And the whole story is very simple. There's this big tycoon who's out. He's a banker and he just goes out and makes all this money and he has all this power and he's just gone right to the top and his family is the family and they have the blue blood and all this kind of stuff. And he gets older and he starts having heart problems and stomach problems and above all, he has no friends. Then there's this other guy, the grandfather kind, who one day, years before, had gone up the elevator in the building and said, I don't want to do this anymore. Got in the elevator, went down, and started cultivating relationships in the community, and he made friends. And as these two grew older, one guy was all alone and miserable, and his life was falling apart, and the other one was surrounded by relationships. And the whole point of the movie is, if you chase things and money, you're going to end up miserable. If you chase people and relationships, you're going to be rich. Now, there was no Christ in it, and Theology was poor, but the point was of our text. What will it gain a person, what will it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their own soul? Their relationship with God, their relationship with people. That's the warning to us in this time. And only when the pain of marginless living is severe enough will we be willing to consider these steps to the healing Jesus offers. And I want to give them to you, and they're tough steps. And we're going to need the Holy Spirit to even help us hear them. But let me throw them at you. First, we need to prioritize. We need to subtract from our schedules before we add anything. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added. And we've done just the reverse. We've added all these other things, and then we seek first the kingdom. And that, when, when we turn it upside down, we get all fouled up. Uh, I've got to just brief, I, I take off the sermon a minute and go back to the children's sermon last night because I see Heidi down here. She did a, a neat sermon. We had a, a, an experiment. We had a pitcher. And she filled it half filled with rice, the little things that we fill our life with. And then she put in great big golf balls. And when she put the golf balls on top of the rice, they wouldn't fit, where we put the important things on last. But then she emptied it out, put the golf balls, the important things in first, then added the rice. And you know what? They all fit. <laughs> What a perfect illustration of the text, that we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then God will add all these other things if we don't get it backwards. Jesus is not, I want to say this, Jesus is not asking us to attend another class at this church or take on caring for another person or give another dollar to the budget until we have subtracted something else from our overcommitted lives. I'm convinced we as a church can feed workaholism and put the name of Jesus on it and just add one more thing for you people to carry. That's absolutely a contradiction of what Jesus wants us to do. I think every person who accepts an elder or a teaching position, or if you, even if you come to a Bible class, we ought to ask you first, what have you dropped before you took this on? One elder commented how some Christians are so overdosed on classes and church activities, we suffer from spiritual indigestion. I agree. You see, the rest Jesus offers from the pain of overload begins when we recognize we have limits, which means we no longer glorify the dysfunction of workaholism, and we as your pastors and leaders can't glorify it even in the name of Jesus Christ. It means we schedule in advance time for God and for self and for people and family and friends and small groups. 
And that simply means we schedule out other things. We don't add to it. Remember, God said one day in seven should be totally devoted to rest. How we've forgotten that. We're lucky to give an hour a week for what God said we needed a whole day. But remember, relationships are what make life worth living. And this is how Jesus kept his balance during his busy three-year ministry. And that's a model we neglect at our peril. How many of you have tried to set a date on calendars to be with friends, only to discover you have to look two or three weeks ahead, if at all, and then if you're like me, when the time arrives to go out and enjoy some people, you're so hassled, you're so tired, that you hardly have time and you wish you hadn't made the date because you're just too drained. That's pathetic. One elder marks one day off a month in her calendar just for personal needs. And it made the rest of us just kind of say, gosh, I wish I could do that. And then we asked, why not? Here's something else. Some people are writing into their day timers reminders to call such and such a person, to relate to such a person. Making it right in the middle of their day, they write into the day timer time to prioritize relationships because if they don't, it always gets at the tail end of the train and you're usually too tired to give anything to anybody. The margin book suggests we schedule our lives at 80% so we allow for the unexpected, so God can surprise us with people. Scheduling at 80% frees us to be available for the needs of others, to have time to listen and care about people because that's the primary aim we're here, not to get money or power or achievement, to be God's caretakers of people. If we're Christian, that's our job. There's no better way to relieve psychic pain than to have contact with another human being. We need friends who don't drain us, but fill us and energize us, and then we have time to reach out to those people who need and who can have uh, something from our reservoir. You have nothing to give if you're empty. You can't be a contagious Christian if you're empty. A second step in our Lord's plan for healing after subtracting from our schedule is, is to cultivate contentment. Paul talks about the secret of contentment, and it is a secret because I believe the search for the Holy Grail in the Bay Area is not for contentment, it's for more, specifically for more money and for what money can buy. That's our God. No one seems to have enough. The more we get, the more we need. And Jesus warns our only defense against the addictive power of money, it's the most powerful drug in the world, is to share it and to invest it in the building of God's kingdom. This is an age of envy and manufactured need. We got our Sunday paper this morning, that thick, filled with stuff trying to seduce us into buying things and create needs. We look for our personal worth in our net worth. And we think having money somehow sets us above the common set. And Jesus said money is the root of all evil and we have the audacity to say that makes us better than other people. Having lunch the other day in a restaurant around here known as the place where big business deals take place, we overheard this conversation, obviously between two financial types. With almost desperation in his voice, this one guy probably told his financial advisor, tell me, where can I put my money now? And I wanted to walk up and tell him about a potential investment in kingdom business, but I don't think he would have understood. You see, when Jesus asks us to share, it's not a call to sacrifice, it's a call to freedom. Because he says again, what will it profit us if we gain the whole world and lose our own souls? And you know what? He, the only time Jesus called anybody a fool, it was about the person who was rich and he got richer and he just simply built bigger barns. And he said, you're a fool. 
A second way to find contentment is to cultivate a simpler lifestyle, making a decision that enough is enough, and then we share the rest. Remember Jesus said if we have food and clothing, we should be content. I wonder how many of us live by that premise here on the peninsula. But this is the point. Jesus isn't seeking to deprive us. He's not a masochist. He said this is the only way you're going to find freedom and joy. And I sometimes wonder, beginning with me, why don't we get it when we keep pursuing this other addictive, consumer-oriented, materialistic behavior and we're miserable, and yet we won't change until the pain gets so intense that sometimes things break. Why don't we trust our Lord's wisdom? Why don't we believe His way will work in a very real world? You know, I'm intrigued by reports from our high school and college young people after their visits to Mexico. Inevitably, these students tell us these people we visit have nothing materially, but they have each other, and they have joy that make us envy them. I know my own son said he'll never be the same since he's been to Mexico, and I can vouch for that. And as he prepares to go into a profession, he said, I'll never buy in to the culture that I see around me. Now, I told you at the beginning, this sermon was going to be open-ended. This is a beginning. Nobody's going to change from one 20-minute wonder up here in the pulpit. But I want to invite you on a journey. I want to challenge you to read the margin book. A few copies will be available at the tape window, but you could call the office or go out to the information booth, tell us you want one, we'll order you one. Use it in your covenant groups. Reflect on it. It's not a perfect book. You'll stimulate thinking. And then I would urge you to talk and reflect about this subject. Or what we, does what we say here fit? Is Jesus right? And then find some others who might want to agree and help you on a, on a change process because like any recovery from an addiction, you're going to need help. And then here's a challenge. You who are in positions to influence companies, would you begin to think how you might establish policies that will allow employees to have margin in their lives and yet still stay in business? And then above all, we're talking about something that will demand we all pray about this issue in our life. This is something counterculture, and it's impossible, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But I think we're ready, because I think Jesus is calling many of us, and we're hearing it, to make this decision. I've grown accustomed to the pace, and I don't like it, and I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to reclaim my life, because this is what Jesus wants me to do. And I want to remind you, Jesus never gives a mandate for which he will not also give us supernatural power to do it. And you know, if we do it, we've talked about being contagious Christians. I just hold this in front of you from my initial soundings in the peninsula. If a group of us could make this work so we could find margin, I don't think we could hold the crowds that would come here to seek what makes us tick and they would be drawn to Jesus. If Jesus can cure marginless living, we've opened up a whole new frontier of evangelism. Remember his words, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we talked about tough stuff this morning. I find in my own life how even preaching this seems so impossible. And yet we're people of the resurrection and you raise dead things and you do the impossible. And Lord, we want to radiate a life that brings glory to you. Give us grace. Help us. We can't do it alone. In Jesus' name, amen.